What happens when wealth meets wilderness? Climate One conversations feature energy companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. For many of us, the story of the American wilderness begins when Europeans arrived on these shores and began conquering it. What often gets written out is the history and culture of those native societies who were here to begin with and whose relationship to this land is very different. Because when you see the natural world and all the things in it as relations, as relatives, you are then responsible to them. Dina Gillia Whitaker is an American Indian studies expert and the author of As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. These days, being at one with nature could mean flying there in a private jet. In Justin Farrell's book, Billionaire Wilderness, the Yale professor describes wealthy landowners in expensive cowboy boots swaggering through the saloons of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and congratulating each other on their environmental stewardship and philanthropy. And the money, most of it is going to environmental and arts organizations who have you know tens of millions of dollars in the coffers. Meanwhile, the people who you know, work for the wealthy who are there to enjoy this idea of nature are struggling, working two to three jobs. Access to the outdoors is more and more becoming a luxury, not a right. And for those in low-income communities, it may be out of reach. A hundred million people in this country, and that's 28 million kids, do not have a park close to home, do not have a green space close to home that they can access. That's Diane Regas, president and CEO of the Trust for Public Land. On today's program, we'll talk about the history of the American outdoors, the intersection between public and private land interests, and how to make contact with nature more sustainable and inclusive for all. We start by exploring the myths and realities of the American West. As Dina Gillia Whitaker points out, there's more to the story than most of us have heard. We uh, often hear this phrase that the national parks are America's greatest idea or something to that effect. And this narrative begins with this sort of um, common sense understanding about the wilderness as, as uh, a, you know, the virgin wilderness, a place that was uh, unpeopled. It was uh, uh, these places where um, only animals roamed. And, you know, maybe there were Indians there at one time, um, but they were like the animals and they're roaming around on the on the, the land, you know, aimlessly. But the reality of that is that Native people have always inhabited these spaces everywhere. Every square inch of the land on this continent was Indigenous territory. They were spaces and lands that Native people used for a variety of um, purposes. They were, uh, most tribal people were actually farmers. Um, so, you know, to debunk the myth of the, the wandering nomadic native, this is largely something that's very um, not really true. Um, there were people, however, that were, you could say, um, migratory and they traveled between between homelands, between places in what we sometimes call the seasonal round. So there were home, much like people today have, uh, you know, winter homes and summer homes. Um, Native people had had the same kind of land use patterns where they would travel from uh, their winter homes to their summer homes and back, depending on food sources and ceremonial cycles and things like that. 
so um, this is and this is what happens with um, some of these state par- or these national parks like Yellowstone, like like Yosemite and Glacier National Monument, which are the first three that become um, national parks. Um, and they, you know, the the actual history of them is that they were not empty spaces that needed to be preserved, but they were empty spaces that needed to first be uh, created. Um, as Mark David Spence notes in his um, this his infamous book, um, Dispossessing Wilderness, and uh, and so so this is uh, you know part of the larger history of of American. Um, genocide, land theft, and, and indigenous dispossession that most people don't really connect with when they think of national parks. Uh, Justin Farrell, as a native of Wyoming, you note in your book that you gained access as a white man from the Ivy League that you know a person from another background wouldn't have. So you know, how did race and class offer you access into the ultra-wealthy in Jackson Hole? You write about uh, the real upper percent there. Yeah. So historically, you know, there hasn't been a lot of work um, within the academy on the ultra wealthy, on economic elites, at least from the ground level, um, from their perspective through interviews or observation. And so um, in terms of this project, I really played up um, kind of both aspects of my identity. I I do talk about in the introduction of my book how I am a white man. I, I was able to navigate these spaces almost in an unquestioned way um, through these private clubs. If I were even walking through the lobby, you know, of um, the Yellowstone Club or or some other um, elite private clubs, no one was going to stop me and ask me what I was doing there or ask me why I was there. And so I had that um, an aspect of of my identity that allowed me to to gain access into these spaces. But also um, being, you know, born in Wyoming, uh, I also have this gravitas that um, the folks I interviewed often admired and tried to emulate. And um, so I had this kind of dual identity of this, you know, Yale elite um, gravitas and then the Wyoming Western gravitas that ties into these myths of, of authenticity and, and masculinity and, and um, was able to kind of pair those together to, to get the interviews and to get into these spaces. Diane Regas, for generations, the Astoria Hot Springs and Jackson were a community gathering area. In the 1990s, they were closed to the public and a developer planned to convert it to a private spa. What happened next? Well, what happened was the community didn't like that plan. Um, And in fact, a couple of those developers went bankrupt. And the Trust for Public Land believes that everybody needs access to the outdoors um, at every economic level every race, uh, Native people, everybody. Um, We can live longer, healthier, and happier lives if we have access. So the Astoria Hot Springs, which is about halfway between Jackson Hole and uh, Alpine, a city where a lot of the people who work in Jackson live, um, we figured out who owned it and tracked them down and began to engage the community in what would they like to see at Astoria Hot Springs. And what people wanted was a restoration of a place that they'd had access to as kids. Um, And people who'd immigrated to the area, a lot of the Hispanics who lived lived around there, live in Alpine, really wanted a place that they could go and recreate with their families. So we had thousands of local people 
involved in designing what Astoria Hot Springs could look like going forward. Um, it's one of the only hot springs in the country that is now run by a nonprofit, and we're hoping to reopen it. Uh, it'll be ready physically this year um, with uh, provisions to make sure that everybody can have access. So I'm really excited about it and really excited to get to go see it. And Justin, that really runs against kind of the theme of what you've written about, which is these private enclaves, gated communities, large vasts of land sort of uh, preserved for uh, uh, people who own them or their friends. Um, so where's the wealth coming from and how is it reshaping the American West? Yeah, it's it's coming from the shift within the United States and even globally with the increase of, of wealth among a select few. And so, for example, we've seen a globally a 13% increase just over one year in the number of ultra-wealthy people. And then in the United States, there are more than 100,000 ultra-wealthy people now. And, um, you know, that's commonly known in terms of just the the wealth concentration and the income inequality that has resulted. Um, But it is nice to hear a story like Astoria Hot Springs that you have this, you know, community collaboration and you have a nonprofit, um, you know, getting in touch with the community and building it around their needs which is very different than, you know, our North in, in Jackson Hole, um, which was the topic of my book. Right. And, and and you write about how the wealthy relate to the environment. And there's also you, you talk about right uh, somewhat about uh, the people who live there who are very, um, you know, making twenty thousand dollars a year. And, the, and these wealthy people like to pride themselves that they can sit at the cowboy bar and people don't know that they're a billionaire. and They f- mingle with regular folk. But what, what's their approach to the environment and the intersection of race? Yeah. So I talk about, you know, how they use the environment to solve these dilemmas that they face. And there's these economic dilemmas. You've, you've made all this money. Um, how, do you, how should you enjoy it? How should you give it away? Um, but then there's also the social dilemma, which you're kind of touching on here in terms of how do they wrestle with and respond to the social stigma of being rich, of, of um, feeling like perhaps they're not authentic people or perhaps for some feeling guilty about having all that wealth. Not all, uh, just some. Um, and that plays into their attraction to these areas and to the idea that, again, kind of going back to Dina's point, that this is an, an unpreserved, a preserved Eden, you know, that they, they can enjoy, they can relax and they deserve, you know, to relax in because they've worked so hard to get their wealth. And so what's really interesting is the way it plays out, again, across these race and class lines, in the sense that, you know, when you move to a place like that, um, I write in the book how they're trying to become more authentic people and they're trying to resolve uh, these ex- existential dilemmas they face as wealthy, as folks who are sometimes targeted um, in the media and the like. Um, and so they try to form relationships with, quote unquote, normal people. And um, oftentimes those relationships are based on economic exchange. So, um, you know, I did interviews with the working poor, mostly immigrants from Mexico and ask them, are these really your friends? Do they really care for you? Um, what is your sense of how their environmental ethic and, and how they you know, enjoy the environment? And so all this is wrapped up again in race and class and impacts how they see the natural environment. And then it ultimately impacts their philanthropy and, and which organizations they, they um, give money to and, and the impact that has on the community and the ecosystem. Diane Regas, uh, the Trust for Public Land, you know, works with uh, community groups and acquires land that hands, hands them over to local control. Um, do you think that, you know, Native Americans, other people of color uh, traditionally have been left out a lot of those conversations? What does Trust for Public Land try to in- be inclusive 
um, with the people who are around the land now, and as, as Dina mentioned earlier, may have been related to it or, or occupied it earlier. Well, it takes time and care to make sure that we engage the communities. And so we we put equity at the center because equity in the outdoors is absolutely essential and it's not easy to achieve, I think, for some of the reasons that Justin has pointed to. So we look, is the, is the organization invited into the community? Um, have we looked at the data and are informed about who's in the community, how to engage them, and are we involving them? Um, and it's really exciting to, to me to see how when, when we invite in a genuine way the opportunities for communities to engage uh, with us, with partners, for what they want to see in their community for the outdoors, um, it, it's truly transformational. It changes the community, strengthens the community, in addition to providing wonderful opportunities for people to get outdoors. Um, just one example that um, here in California, where both Dina and I are, are right now, the Kashaya Band of the Pomo Indians had been uh, kicked off of their historic lands and limited to a very small reservation. And some of their sacred lands, um, they actually had to get permission to go, whether it was to uh, do traditional food gathering, whether it was to sacred ceremonies. It's along the coast of Sonoma, which you probably have heard of as a pretty wealthy area. Um, some of the families that had owned that land allowed uh, the Kashaya to come on, and uh, but they had to ask. And so a few years ago, we got the opportunity to work with the tribe um, and help them create a new Kashaya uh, preserve along the coast so that for the first time they have ownership and management of that land, first time in 150 years since they were kicked off the land. For me, it creates a sense of optimism that we can make progress in addressing the very serious issues that communities have with historic inequities, historic lack of access, historic um, changes in even their access to their most sacred places. Dina Julia Whitaker, um, I realized preparing for this program how ignorant I am of um, Native American history, and I went to some pretty good schools, but and I don't know if I blocked it out of my mind because I didn't want to. It was hard to confront uh, those things. So you know, address the educational inadequacies and also what terms we should be using. Your experience is unfortunately just common. So. I mean, it doesn't matter. You could have, uh, you know, a, 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 an advanced degree and still not know, um, you know, the, the, what the actual history and, and political structure of this country is relative to American Indians um, because it's not taught. Um, and, you know, studies actually show that, that across the board uh, in all 50 states in the K-12 level, um, the teaching of American Indians stops at about 1900. So um, what that does in effect is render Native people as um, people of the past, people that no longer exist. Um, and so it's no wonder that when we show, if, if we do show up in popular culture or in uh, you know, demographic studies and things like that, um, most of the time we're not there, for, especially um, but when we are, we are painted with these broad brushstrokes of um, 
being, you know, not modern people, you know, relegated into this frozen past. So, um, but, but the important thing to know is that as, as people, we are not ethnic minorities, right? That's probably the biggest misnomer that we deal with. We are not ethnic minorities. It is not correct to think of us in terms of um, people of color, um, as uh, people part of the large brown mass, like um, we are nations, we are people with political relationships to the state because of the treaty relationships. There are over 300 treaties that are still extant, that still um, that are still in force because they don't expire; they are made in perpetuity, and that constructs our relationship to the United States which is usually a thorn in the side of the state um, because for them, for the American government, we have always been a problem. The Indian problem is something to, to be solved, which they try to do by usually by trying to get rid of us in one way or another. So, um, so we're always fighting against that impulse. We say the impulse of the settler state uh, is to eliminate the native to to gain access to our land. And that is not something that is, has ended. We saw it recently with uh, the Trump administration early on in the COVID crisis um, with the, the disestablishment of the Wampanoag Reservation in Massachusetts. So, you know, we are still basically under attack. Our lands are still, we are still trying to, to protect them. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the American wilderness. Coming up, making the great outdoors more inclusive. It's not enough to just have the land and trails there. People have to feel welcome. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about wealth and wilderness in America. My guests are Dina Gilio Whitaker of California State University, San Marcos, Diane Regas of the Trust for Public Land, and Justin Farrell of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. In his book, Billionaire Wilderness, Justin Farrell explores the lives of the uber-wealthy living on ranches and in gated communities in Jackson, Wyoming, near the majesty of the Grand Tetons. Like many, they're drawn to that state's pristine beauty and are dedicated to preserving its natural wonders. But there's a deep irony there. Wyoming is the largest producer of coal and, um, you know, substantial oil, natural gas. And, and that, in a, in a lot of ways, has made possible this, what I call a tax haven in Wyoming. And it is very lucrative um, to move there for at least part of the year. They have very loose restrictions on what counts as being a resident. And so you, you see over time this rush of wealth to that corner of the state. Um, and, for example, by 2015, eight out of every $10 made in Teton County came from investment dividends and it just interest um, rather than a salary from a job. And so um, the state is, is able to um, continue not to have an, an in, a state income tax, a corporate tax. And so it's a very uh, lucrative place. And you do, you know, you connect that to climate change. And I would ask them about, you know, maybe they worked in finance um, or maybe they worked for an oil and gas company or, you know, were CEO of an oil and gas company. And a lot of the conversations that we would have would kind of move away from these these issues that I call buzzkill issues um, or issues that might um, place one in more choppier political waters. 
um, because climate change is inherently, uh, you know, a political issue and um, is going to be resolved at the at that level. Um, and so, you know, it was really interesting to me to under to understand and to write about how they kind of navigate all of that in terms of they love the area, they love the pristine ecosystem, and and yet climate change is wreaking havoc on that very ecosystem. So it was just difficult for them to kind of even conceptualize and discuss too. When Jessica Newton tried inviting her daughter's friends on family hikes, many of their moms said no way. She realized that not all Black women were as comfortable out in nature as she was. She started a meetup and later an organization called Black Girls Hike. Three years later, she renamed the group to Vibe Tribe Adventures. And now they go hiking, zip lining, river rafting, and more. They're based in Denver with chapters around the U.S. and a few overseas. I've always been an outdoorsy girl. Black women, we're already very communal anyways. And so being able to say, hey, black girls, let's go out and hike. Well, number one, it attracted women who were already outdoorsy. And then I started seeing other women who had never been outdoors. And it was like, hey, I saw you guys. You made a post on Facebook and I just want to try it. There are tons of black women across the globe who want to get outdoors, but they may not have the education on how to be outdoors. They may not have the resources to get outdoors. And there's a fear of wilderness. We did have an incident where we went hiking and the state patrol, park rangers, and the border directors were called on us for hiking. What they tried to say is that we didn't have a permit because there were so many of us, but we had no idea that there was gonna be this many out. And so the fear manifested itself. I saw people who are trying to explore outdoors and they already have a fear of wildlife. Now we have to worry about other human beings who don't necessarily think this is a place for us or a place to be diversified. Because Denver is not, you know, our percent for being African-American is about 2%, 2 to 5%. So typically our guides will go scout a trail to see how it feels out there. If we get the, you know, the look like, hey, what are you doing here? It's like, nah, this is not a good city. We're going to go to the next one. I do know that Colorado Parks and Wildlife is definitely, definitely trying. Taisha Adams, she's actually the first African-American commissioner for um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. You just look at the history on the wall. You just walk down the hall and you see poster, picture after picture after portrait after portrait. And there's no Native Americans, no Asians. Like, it's crazy. I'm like, wow, this is what Parks and Recs is made of. And so for me, it's a joy to see someone like her step into a position of action to say, here is where we change our policies, our legislative efforts. How do we work on getting the brown community, the black community outdoors and just really intricate into the outdoor atmosphere? That was Jessica Newton, founder of Vibe Tribe Adventures, an outdoor group for black women. Diane Regas, your great-great-grandmother, I believe, came and homesteaded in what is now Denver, where you grew up. Your reflections on how that group based in Denver and how certain people just don't feel welcome in the outdoors. Yeah, first of all, um, it's unfortunately all too common that people experience these kinds of incidents. And I love Jessica's leadership. Of bringing people together and getting outdoors. I think it demonstrates a couple of really important things. One is that it's not enough to just have the land and trails there. People have to feel welcome. 
And that is that requires everything from community leadership to leadership at the governmental level um, to work to work from groups like us, frankly, because the conservation um, movement needs to change to address these issues of people who need to feel welcome outdoors. Um, and and so I, I love that work. It's absolutely fantastic. But I think it um, to me, the, the core of it is that community creating that she's doing. Um, and what we find is that centering around community, whether it's in a, a black neighborhood, a Hispanic neighborhood, whether it's working with a tribe, um, that centering around community is where you create that power and create that welcoming atmosphere and people really begin to sense that they own these public lands. They have a right to be there. Dina, uh, white people often look at land as something to be developed or improved, something to to own. Uh, you know, parks are a little bit different. They're held in common. Um, tell us about how, you know, the Native Americans view land obviously very differently, not something to be shared and stewarded. We hear about seventh generation. Tell us about that conceptual difference in connection to the land. Yeah, we have this word. Okay, I'm going to throw out a, a jargony word here, and the word is called epistemology. And it's an academic term, and and it just simply means um, how we come to know what we know. So it's like knowledge, and we talk about indigenous epistemologies as or worldviews. We could say worldviews as very different than the Eurocentric worldviews that we are raised within. Um, that views land as uh, as anthropocentric, right? Where that is uh, human-centered, that that is in service to humans, that is um, ultimately commodified. And thus we have, you know, you know, capitalism mediates um, these extractive industries that we know of, you know, with like with the oil and gas industry, with mining and um, the ways that we use the land to, um, to create wealth. But from an indigenous perspective, the land is a relation and all the things on the land is our relatives. We talk about our non-human relatives. So this is a worldview that is relational, um, that decenters humans. And it also decenters a discourse or a narrative of rights. And that's another thing about the Eurocentric, a Eurocentric worldview in uh, an individualist democracy, you know, quote unquote democracy like we have in the U.S., um, that is what we call a rights-based society. In Native societies, they are responsibility-based societies because when you see the natural world and all the things in it as relations, as relatives, you are then responsible to them. So that sets up an entirely different kind of way that you engage with the land. Diane Regas, Trust for Public Land puts people at the center, which is different than some environmental organizations, which are some of them are focused on uh, saving cute furry creatures or, or whole ecosystems. Is, is Trust for Public Land anthropocentric? Is it human-centered? And are, other, are the humans above more important than other members of an ecosystem? Craig, I think that's, a first of all, a really good question. I think there's a lot of commonality between the um, ideas that Dina is describing and what we're aiming for. We believe that communities need to be at the center. And if you think historically in this country about the phases of the environmental and conservation movements, you know, we created the national parks. That's wonderful. And it's uh, work that needs to continue to conserve places. 
Um, and then we had, uh, I would say, I would probably mark it with um, uh, Silent Spring, where we started to really be worried about the chemicals. And we had the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, um, a lot of those pollution-oriented that was really about trying to control human behavior. Um, and in the 80s, we kind of added to that and said, you know, corporations also have to take responsibility. Um, but I, I believe that conservation needs to shift back to more of a focus on the relationship with people. And people at the center of our work means that we're thinking about the relationship between people and land, people in close to home parks, people in faraway parks, um, and what that means for the community. And to me, that's the next step for conservation is to really be bringing people and those relationships back in and recognize we are not going to solve climate change. We are not going to solve widespread species extinctions unless we really take into account people and communities. Justin Farrell, you write about the charitable industrial complex and kind of the new Rockefeller paradigm. So, you know, where is that paradigm? Is that human-centered? Is that kind of preserving pretty landscapes for, for a relative few? Explain what it, what the charitable industrial complex is. Yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I also want to connect that with what Dina and Diane were saying, too. And I think with this, the charitable industrial complex, as, as I describe it, is built upon some of the myths especially that Dina was mentioning in how we how we see nature and how we use nature and to Dina's earlier point about indigenous people being locked in time and oftentimes the preservation of nature um, especially in the area that I, that I wrote about you know it works differently in different areas which we can talk about that but out in in the especially in Wyoming in the west around Yellowstone Grand Teton National Park the idea of nature and the idea of giving money and, and engaging in, you know, giving your time and philanthropy um, to protect nature is through this elite sort of white lens um, that can be based on, you know, this romanticized view of nature and a nature that, um, for example, for Yellowstone had to remove certain people um, to create that Eden and to create that um mentality and that romantic idea that is still kind of beneath some of the organizations who work in these areas. But the charitable industrial complex I refer to um, just as this short-term phrase uh, in, in this area that describes, you know, how folks give their money, who they give their money to. And oftentimes it, it goes to these issues that are um, serving themselves or serving their, their view shed or in some instances, improving their um, property value. And in the community of Jackson and Teton County, um, you have, it's the wealthiest county per capita in the nation, but also has the largest gap between the rich and the poor there. And so you do have a lot of social problems. Um, you have some homelessness in the schools. Um, and there are a lot of issues that need attention. And the money, um, as I show in one of the chapters of the book, is not going to any of those social services organizations who really need it. Uh, most of it is going to environmental and arts organizations who have, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the coffers. Meanwhile, the people who, you know, work for um, the wealthy who are there to enjoy this idea of nature um, are struggling, working two to three jobs. And so highlighting that disconnect between um, caring for the people and to Diane's point, what do we want our communities to look like? Um, and, you know, ones that are, they're more democratic that are, or the ones that are shaped by a wealthy few. And so that's all kind of part of this, 
this makeup in the community and, and philanthropy uh, plays a huge role in that. Um, and also does a lot of good in the community, but I kind of highlight some areas where folks are more concerned about environmental issues that serve themselves or, or, or serve their elite experience of nature um, rather than a more holistic approach. Greg, if I could if I could just jump in a second on that, because I think it's a really complex uh, point and one that's worth giving a lot of thought to. I mean, I would agree that uh, people who've got wealth can and should do more, but I I don't want to lose sight of the reality that access to nature is actually essential for all humans. And if you look at the data, they show absolutely clearly a couple of things. One is having access to nature has a bigger impact on health the lower income people are. So if you're high income and you've got, you know, all the other needs of life and a lot and, and a lot of the wants, access to nature actually does help your health. But if you're at a lower income, it helps your health more. So we believe that access to nature is essential um, and don't want to lose sight of that. Um, the other thing is, is and I, I found this statistic quite shocking. Um, when I first came to the Trust for Public Land, when I learned that 100 million people in this country, and that's 28 million kids, do not have a park close to home, do not have a green space close to home that they can access. And at the Trust for Public Land, we're actually about closing that gap because we know we all need access to nature. I think it's needed to solve the big problems facing the world, as well as to address the public health um, and community issues that we see now more than ever. I think the, the COVID pandemic is highlighting how important it is for people to have a place to get outdoors close to home. Diane Regas, you've also written about how uh, public spaces and public parks have been used as um, you know gathering spaces. You put out a statement about Lafayette Square in front of the White House and noted it's been used as an encampment for soldiers, the sites of duels, the longest running anti-war protests in the U.S., as well as a slave market and a zoo. That was new to me. Um, and our parks are you know public forums where we can gather, celebrate, protest, and mourn. So talk to us about the you know the importance of public spaces, especially now. If you think about um, what has happened in our lifetimes and where people go when they're feeling a need to gather, when they're responding to challenges facing our country, we go to public spaces. Um, I lived in Washington after 9-11, and I know we all flocked to public spaces to gather and mourn. But that's true at uh, you know, big historic events. It's also true in communities when you get together for a picnic at a social distance now, um, or a community comes together for a market or a parade or a community meeting to really imagine and create what they want their community to look like. Oftentimes it's in parks and public spaces. So public spaces play such enormously important roles. They help define culture. Um, they help define community and create community. So we're we, that's why we put community at the center, and we think it's so important to uh, look at the data and make sure that everybody is actually getting access to these spaces. 
Justin Farrell makes me think also about the community in Jackson Hole, where these ultra wealthy people like to be amongst themselves in their gated communities, uh, but they also like to go down to the the local bar and, and and think of themselves as an average person. And and you write about how they're they're trying to recapture something that they've lost in their accumulation and chase of wealth. They they like they fancy themselves as being accessible and relatable and not pretentious. Tell us about some of those inner conflicts that you found in these people. Yeah, this was this was fascinating. And that was that dichotomy between this privatized elite access to nature, kind of the opposite of what, what Diane was talking about. And, and, and everybody needs that. Um, and but they so they had their own kind of enclaves, whether it was a private club or um, a gated community and so forth. But then there was this whole other side about, you know, trying to overcome or wrestle with or respond to the social stigma of being rich. And, and the extent that they would go to prove to themselves or or prove to others that, you know, money hadn't turned them into these out of touch monsters. And so interestingly, I found to solve some of these dilemmas that they they use this combination of of rural people or this romantic idea about rural rural people as a as a vehicle for transformation. And, and so they're able to create these new versions of themselves that are more in tune with nature, but that are also more authentic, more community-minded. And um, again, it was based again on this romanticized ideal of rural people and poverty. And, and some of that was the, the called the noble Native American locked in time or the, the noble cowboy also locked in time. You're listening to a conversation about conserving and accessing nature. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Coming up, climate change, conservation, and being a good steward. I mean, when you live on the land for thousands and thousands of years, as our ancestors did, that is the very definition of sustainability. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about preserving and protecting the great outdoors. My guests are Diane Regas of the Trust for Public Land, Justin Farrell, author of Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West, and Dina Gilio Whitaker, author of As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. She's currently writing a book that explores how indigenous knowledge can help address climate change. In my view, climate change, well, and not just climate change, but really um, the world that we live in that has led to this state of profound environmental degradation is the result of and is a problem of not just science, not just capitalism even. Well, capitalism is a huge problem. It's part of it. But it's it's a problem of philosophy. Um, so it and, and that worldview and that orientation that we have to the world, if we inhabit an orientation to the world that just is a, results in extra, this extractive relationship to the earth, then that's going to just keep perpetuating these these environmental problems that we keep intensifying. But if we change the way that we relate to the world, if we understand the land and the ecosystems and the the fundamental limitations of them, and learn to respect those limits and the the our relations within them then it changes the the kinds of decisions that we make about how we use the land 
So um, I think that that's really the, the, the keys of indigenous knowledge. Um, because as indigenous peoples, I mean, when you live on the land and for thousands and thousands of years, as our ancestors did, that is the very definition of sustainability, um, land tenure um, and longevity on land without having destroyed your environment means that you you fundamentally understand what sustainability is and you live it. So um, that's why uh, in this country, indigenous people need to be listened to. We need to be paid attention to and uh, and and en- engaged at all levels of decision making. Diane Regis, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about land use post-COVID. You know, there's a huge housing shortage, a lot of places. Now, maybe that'll change as people move away from urban centers and they can do their job remotely. But that's affordability crisis in a lot of uh, not just U.S. cities around the world. And that a lot of that gets to some of that is conserving land where housing can't be built. So how do you see, you know, coming out of COVID, um, if people are going to move, already moving out of, uh, the moving away from the coast, moving away from urban areas, that's going to put some development pressure on less populated areas. How do you see that playing out? You know, it's interesting. There was already um, pressure on some of those more small to mid-sized cities. I think about Bozeman, Montana, or Gunnison, Colorado, places that are beautiful, have access to public land on trails. People are able to work more remotely. And of course, that's been accelerated under COVID. I think that that commitment to equity that we need the conservation and environmental movement to deeply build into everything we do brings a new set of challenges. Um, And especially these issues, the issues of housing, which you need a piece of land to build a house on. Um, you need a piece of land to build an apartment on. You need a piece of land to to live on. And I think there are some good examples around the country of how to begin to navigate that. And um, in in Gunnison, which I mentioned, you know, we were able to help with a land swap that created some trails and access for people, but also ended up with a big contribution of millions of dollars to create hundreds of units of housing in, in the Gunnison area. Same thing in Bozeman, Montana, where someone had evicted low-income people from, from their homes to do a new big development. That went bankrupt. We were given the piece of land to build a central park for Bozeman, which is a wonderful thing to do and engaged lots and lots of hundreds and thousands of people in what that should look like. But there's a responsibility there to think about what about that housing shortage. And so there's interesting new solutions. Like in that case, we carved off um, a few acres to create housing in addition to having the Central Park. What I'm seeing is more and more partnerships that cross some of these traditional issue lines, like an environmental group or a conservation group also cares about housing, also cares about equity, also cares about public engagement voting. Um, and you know we can get to that by really thoughtful partnerships with local communities, with um, whether it's a rural community, whether it's an urban community, whether it's a small city or town. You know, if you've ever gone for a vacation in a small town, a lot of times there's nowhere to get outside. And so there these issues that that we're grappling with, whether it's housing, whether it's equity, whether it's um, access to the outdoors, 
you know, they show up differently in every community in our country, and we need to be very flexible and, and bring in allies to, to work on them. Justin Farrell, you testified before Congress about dark funding of climate misinformation and the connection with philanthropy. So there's sort of a dark side. I'm curious if any of the people you interviewed are you know, funding climate denial organizations while preserving the you know, trout streams in Wyoming, but funding climate denialism. Did you get into the, any of that? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm sure there is overlap within those networks because a lot of it runs within some of these conservative think tanks that do all sorts of work, not just, um, you know, climate denial. And actually, uh, most of that has went underground in recent years. So during the 90s and early 2000s, um, you had, you know, Exxon funding a lot of these groups or even creating imitation environmental groups to um, disparage the facts on climate change and to spread misinformation. And so that testimony um, before the Senate committee was about that process and that the history of fossil fuel companies and their allies um, to essentially confuse the, the American public on climate change. And so, you know, there's some commonalities between my new book and that, but that's the, the fossil fuel funding of climate denial is much more nefarious, um, much less complex in its motivations. And um, whereas in this, this book, there are a lot of really interesting ironies and complexities, and there's a lot of goodwill even that just kind of falls flat sometimes. Um, whereas in, you know, climate denial, it was, uh, they had the mission and they, they mostly accomplished it. Dina Julia Whitaker, you live on the California coast where the term managed retreat uh, is sometimes used. You say that's rich people's territory. There's a lot of wealthy coastal property that's at risk. You know, how do you see that, that playing out? Well, uh, the way I see it playing out is that sea level rise doesn't discriminate. And so, uh, you know, on these uh, these coast with these coastal properties that are by and large owned by wealthy people um, who will not be able to get flood insurance, who still who cannot get flood insurance, um, they are facing, you know, massive amounts of uh, stranded assets, um, which means that as we play that game, as we talked about before, that game of musical chairs, somebody eventually is going to, the music's going to stop and they're going to be holding property that is, for all intents and purposes, is um, worthless um, because it's going to be underwater. So the state has taken that that approach. Um, the Cal, Cal, state of California considers it a crisis now, and that's how they're dealing with it. And um, the, the fights around armoring and managed retreats are heating up. And, uh, and at the same time, it's also in raising these questions about access and um, how do we protect access to public spaces um, to the coast for public people or people in the public and people who come from disadvantaged communities that don't have easy access to the coast. And so um, this is the work of the Coastal Commission, some of the great recent work of the Coastal Commission that uh, you know, I applaud and uh, having done this work of uh, creating an uh, environmental justice policy and um, engaging tribes. As we wrap up, I want to ask each of you to note a, a bright spot that you see, because uh, there is so much pain and you know, racial pain, COVID pandemic, it's heavy, <laughs> a lot going on right now. Um, and Diane Regas, I think of the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which is a pretty big recent bipartisan win. So tell us, you know, What's the significance of that? What is it and what's the significance of it? The Land and Water Conservation Fund is the federal fund that's funded. It doesn't directly cost the taxpayers. It's funded from oil and gas revenues 
um, and it has been used to help accomplish some of the conservation, some of the access to trails and parks that I've talked about. Historically, we've had to fight every single year for that to be funded. Um, and uh, the Senate just passed, and we hope are hopeful that the House will pass an agreement to fund it in perpetuity at about twice the level that it's been funded. Um, and so to me, that's very encouraging. The other bright spot I can't resist mentioning is, you know, I see the young people who are currently engaged on issues of racism, on issues of environment and climate, um, on issues of building their communities. And they're so much smarter and wiser um, than I was at their age. It just gives me a lot of hope that with all of the challenges that we're leaving them, they are stepping up. And I just, I, I love seeing that. Dina Julia Whitaker, bright spots you see. I'm with you, Diane, about that with the youth, because I, uh, as a as a college professor and working with the youth, that's who I place my faith in. Uh, and I was nowhere near as savvy as they are at that age. And I'm also really encouraged by what some people see as, you know, civil unrest and um, these ethnic uprisings is, for me, exciting, because finally, we're starting to have some truth be told. And the toppling of these monuments to oppression is a hopeful sign for me. I love that we can say we can, you know, get rid of Columbus and Junipero Serra and John Sutter and all the other, you know, symbols of colonization for indigenous people. Um, it's not just Confederate monuments that are a problem. So um, that gives me hope. Justin Farrell, it gives you hope. Bright spot as we end here. My students, certainly. So I would echo that. Um, but I think, you know, looking at the landscape and, and kind of even in just the last few months, there's more of an emphasis on systemic racism, on economic justice as a systems issue, which um, I say that because I, I think people aren't getting caught up as much as becoming bitter at, you know, rich individual people or becoming bitter at individual moral failings of the rich, but looking instead, what policies can we create to alleviate these problems? Um, and so we're not losing our way by fixating so much on these individual failings, but, but focusing again on, on these policies at the systems level, which I think is a good way forward. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about wealth, privilege, and how that relates to American wilderness. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests were Justin Farrell, Associate Professor of Sociology at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, Diane Regas, President and CEO of the Trust for Public Land, and Dina Gilio Whitaker, American Indian Studies Lecturer at California State University, San Marcos. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.